Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Harbor, a safe space to have awkward conversations related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Selena Caesar Chavan, who is your host, and we welcome you to enjoy this series where we discover and unpack things around equity and justice that are often not talked about, probably haven't been considered, and ways to advance going forward. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Harbor, a safe place to talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion issues, especially as we are on our way to reconciliation and to justice. Today, we are going to be talking about a very interesting topic, especially as we are coming I don't even know if we're out of a pandemic or still in a pandemic or like in the throes of a pandemic. Um, And in light of our conversations uh, within uh, the pandemic setting and calls for racial and social justice um, and the social determinants of health, how food security plays a role on this journey towards justice and reconciliation. I have three guests with me today. Again, I'm your host, Selena Caesar Chavan, and my three guests are Sarah, Ayla and Colleen, and I will let them each introduce themselves. I will start over to the person right in front of me, which you can't really see out in Radio Land, but to Colleen, please introduce yourself and tell people why you're here at the Harbor. Sure. Nice to be here, Selena. Thanks for the introduction. Um, So I'm Colleen. I work at Queen's. I am primarily in the EDIA space all the time. So I'm an associate dean here. I teach global health. I teach determinants of health. And most of my research relates to health equity. Uh, I think I've been driven to address uh, issues of food insecurity through research and knowledge translation because it's such an obvious uh, potential intervention avenue and obviously uh, an issue that is that is facing a huge number of people. Um, And so that's where I sort of come at. For sure. For sure. It's impacting, I think, everybody. Mm -hmm. And and even when you think about the economics right now and how that plays in. Okay. I'll turn it over to you, Sarah. Please introduce yourself and tell the people why you're here at the Harbor. Well, um, miigwech and thank you for having me. I'm Sarah Funnel. I'm a First Nations family physician and public health specialist. And, um, Uh, My role at Queen's, I'm the the Director of Indigenous Health with the Department of Family Medicine. I also uh, work at the University of Ottawa, advancing Indigenous health education within the Faculty of Medicine. And uh, I practice clinically as as a family physician. And up until April of 2022, I was um, a public health physician in the throes of trying to manage multiple outbreaks in the Ottawa area with regard to uh, COVID-19. I know from my public health background and as a human being that uh, food security um, is essential and an important determinant of health. Mm -hmm. Uh, prevention of chronic diseases and other things related to poor diet, um, that food security plays a major role. What I've learned over my learning journey about food is that it's um, more than just a contributor to physical health and that Mm. um, food sovereignty is an important determinant of um, that cultural belonging and Mm. cultural cohesion and that food is medicine in so many ways mm-hmm. and that you know cultural I, I used to, for example I used to think um 
the Inuit diet of country food was a delicacy. It was just a nice to have. But what I've learned um, is that it's essential to health to have right. that food uh, sovereignty. Right. It's spiritual. It's mental. It's healing. It's medicine. It's everything. It's, it's medicine. It's everything. It's not not just consuming it with your mouth. It's your eyes, it's your body, it's your everything. Thank you so much, Sarah, for Thanks. being here. And Ayla, thank you so much for coming. Tell the people who you are and why you are here at the Harbor. Yeah. Thank you for having me. My name's Ayla Fenton. I am the food systems manager at Loving Spoonful. Um, so that means that I manage all of our agricultural programs, all of our food reclamation and local food access programs, which I can talk a bit more about later. But mm -hmm. prior to starting work with Loving Spoonful at the beginning of 2021, I spent the past 10 years working on local organic farms um, and being very heavily involved in, in organizing and activism with the National Farmers Union and internationally with La Via Campesina. Um, so my understanding of food sovereignty is really coming from more from that production side of things, working with peasants and, and small farmers and indigenous people and fisher folk from all over the world. Um, and bringing that back to Kingston now, I, I am really excited that Loving Spoonful is making this, taking a new strategic direction and focusing all of our programs around the principles of food sovereignty as defined by Livia Campesina. And for us, that means um, a lot about increasing the amount of food that's produced locally and increasing access to that good locally produced food, but also along the lines of what Sarah's saying, using food as a community builder, like mm. the production and preparation and consumption of food, all of those different aspects of the food system are really powerful uh, tools for building community, reducing social isolation and addressing some of those, um, so some of those other aspects of health, not just the physical. Absolutely. It's so, I'm loving where this conversation is going because even like culturally, I'm from Grenada, which is a tiny, tiny little island in the Caribbean. And around any holiday, uh, it's the food that brings us together. It is, we don't really see, well, I mean, growing up, we didn't really see who had more or had less because if you had, that meant everybody mm -hmm had. If you cooked, it meant everybody cooked. And so I, I was just thinking, even on the weekend, my brother came over and I didn't have enough chicken left. And I felt like the ancestors looking down at me like, I cannot believe there is not enough chicken when somebody came over. So food is more than just something that we consume. It is, it is life. It is culture. It is everything. So as we're starting in this conversation, I'm going to turn it over to Colleen and we're just going to vibe off each other today because I think we have a very strong group of people here to have this conversation. Tell me, Colleen, just coming out of a pandemic or not even out in the throes of a pandemic where we know that people in particular with the social determinants of health are really, really struggling. We see the Bank of Canada raising interest rates multiple times in the next little, in the last little while. What does, what does all this mean on the ground? Mm -hmm. When I think about food security, I, I think about sort of three aspects of it. One is not having enough uh, food. The other is not having the quality of food you need. Mm -hmm. And the other is not having the preference that you want. So those three pieces are playing in really mixed ways and, and both in Canada and Kingston on campus, as well as internationally, all the different communities I've worked with, there's an overlay of all of that. So there are many places where there's just not enough 
of food in the home, right? There's the individuals are going hungry and the, the economic realities today mean that there are more people in those situations. Right. Um, so that issue is overlapped by the fact that people may have full bellies, but the quality of the food isn't there. And then you mm-hmm. have sort of malnutrition, but you may also have just the idea of very high sugar foods, foods that have a lot of preservatives. Um, there are pieces of the, the quality of the food that are micronutrient related, but then there's also other pieces. And it, it's not appropriate for families to be relying on the dollar store for their nutrition. Right. And, and that is the reality, right? right? And that's in a Canadian or a Kingston context. But internationally, like basic maize type foods without any supplementation of other things, it's not appropriate, even though your belly may feel full, right? Mm-hmm. And then the third piece is kind of that preference. And it's also not appropriate for people not to have the food that is culturally appropriate or is that their preference? And so it's not a third factor. It's it's definitely part of our experience yeah. of food insecurity or or that that feeling of vulnerability related yeah. to food yeah yeah um it, it's it's so interesting what you're saying about like the those poor quality foods because um i i just came from an education session with the first year family medicine residents here at queens and we brought we invited in a speaker luke jeffries from ty and Dodega. You, you know yeah it, <laughs> so um uh, it, we're actually talking about language rights, but it's hard to separate um, I- indigenous um, health inequities uh, and our strengths from from you know food language, etc. So um, he was talking about the five gifts from the white man. Um, these these unhealthy foods. He was like flour, sugar, lard. Um, he, milk was a new one. He said milk and salt, and mm-hmm. you know. Um, the disruption of our traditional cultures of however each uh, indigenous community produced their food has had been changed by colonization to these unhealthy foods. Mm-hmm. And um, we know we still see the impacts of that health inequity um, related to food and other things today mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of our rates of diabetes um, and, and other things, other chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. But even from a global perspective as well, like even again, going back to Grenada, we used to grow so much of our stuff. Now it's like these boats come in with all of of the stuff that we now package, bringing that into perspective. That's I mean, that's a really uh, important point because it's it's important to recognize that food insecurity and well, first of all, I want to make a comment about the difference between food security and food sovereignty, mm, because please. the term food sovereignty was coined in the in the mid '90s by Via Campesina, and it was very much a response to the co-optation of the word food security, because food security is about filling bellies. It does. It's not about what you fill those bellies with or how. It's about making sure that people have like you know sufficient calories in a day, and so that term and that that argument was getting co-opted by agribusiness essentially to make an argument for cheap food that we need cheap efficient capital um like food systems that are rooted in capitalism and an efficient quote efficient production um and the result of that and the result of the past like 100 years of agricultural policy in Canada has been a very intentional accelerating design of a food system and a model of food production that is exclusively oriented around profit, mostly profit for transnational corporations and not for creating food that is actually of benefit to the to 
the average person. Um, so the idea of food sovereignty brings in this additional element of the right of peoples and communities to um, healthy, you know, sufficient quantities and culturally appropriate food, but also their ability and their right to control and define their own agricultural and food systems. So that that concept is obviously very complex and it differs from place to place. And there's a reason why Via Campesina has defined principles of food sovereignty. It doesn't look the same in every community. In indigenous communities, it might be more about reclaiming food ways that have been that have been taken or, or destroyed. Um, but, you know, in like in white settler communities, for those of us who are really disconnected a lot of the time from our traditional food ways and where we came from, like, what does that look like going forward? I think that there's a really complex um, discussion there about how we move forward collectively in a country like Canada. Mm-hmm. I think that this area is so complex and the complexity of when, when I think about um, some of the multinational structural adjustment policies of the 1970s, 80s, it, it created a, a sense in countries that their their micro farms or smaller farms or sustenance farming was was lost entirely. And so now this this island is a banana island. This this community is all about avocados or whatever, and that that doesn't make that doesn't make a proper diet, right? And that doesn't make yeah. uh, security in in your ability to feed yourself and your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's important to recognize too how our food choices and our food systems that we have here in North America affect the food sovereignty of other places also, right? It's not just about agricultural systems in Canada and how we operate things here. It's like when our grocery stores are full of food that have been imported from Central America and Latin America, the United States, like all over the place, that's having a direct impact on the food sovereignty of those places too, because usually it means displacement of peasants and indigenous peoples in those places and the displacement of their traditional food systems. 100%. And, And their economies shift to accommodate a bigger economy. So it, even again, in Grenada, it was nutmeg. It was, you know, growing stuff off the land. And now it's really about importing. So the farms, you know, you see mangoes rotting on the ground. You see like, I know just the thought of that makes mm-hmm. me ill, but you see that all those fruits that used to be something that we would take care of and really enjoyed and were a part of our growing up gone. So your whole economy gets disrupted because now you're feeding into, and I love that you, you differentiated between food security and food sovereignty. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. You, you wanted to jump in. I'm I'm itching to jump in. Um, (laughs) So I, I grew up not far from Kingston. I grew up on Alderville First Nation. And as a a young girl, um, we always had wild rice. Mm-hmm. And every, um, you know, if it was a, a seasonal meal, like say Thanksgiving, there was always wild rice as part part of that meal. And as an adult, um, you know, I just took for granted that that would be part of our culture as, as parents and our kids. Um, and then learning that the price of wild rice was incredible. And then I reflected on my childhood and how, I, how much I didn't recognize um, how privileged I was to grow up with that culture. Mm-hmm. And the interesting part of, of um, why I'm telling you this story is what I've learned as an adult about wild rice is that, you know, it's um, I went out and collected wild rice um, with a group of um, family medicine residents in Peterborough. We went to Curve Lake. We went with um, 
a traditional uh, person from Curve Lake, he taught us the whole system, the legends of wild rice and the stories that went along with it. Uh, we actually actively got in canoes and went and collected it. And um, in that story, he told us about how the waterway system here to transport other goods, uh, global goods, were flooded. Um, so the Trent, wa the Trent Severn waterway system, the St. Lawrence as well. Um, and where I grew up in Alderville, they never collected rice in Rice Lake. Alderville is right beside Rice Lake. Mm -hmm. Instead, the 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 our people had to go to a different area down near Ottawa to collect the rice because that waterway had been flooded and rice could no longer grow in Rice Lake. Mm. And so you can see how um, these colonial structures came in with different values um, and this global economy had actually destroyed this traditional way of collecting a nutritious, healthy um, food item but when we collected the rice, it was more than just like mm, yummy rice. It was like we we were a group. We got in canoes. I had to I had to work with my partner to paddle that canoe. We had to you know communicate how to get the rice, um, and it was more than just getting food. It was physical activity. We're outdoors. We know how much being outdoors is good for our wellness and our health. So um, yeah, I left I left that um, with this sense of like. Um, sadness that that had been lost because of, um, you know, this colonialism and the structures that were in place to basically drown our food. Literally. Literally, yes. Yeah. And then, you know, the story goes on to say, like, in Rice Lake, um, sorry, Curve Lake, there's this poet, um, Drew Hayden Taylor. He's, he's like a comedian type of poet. Mm -hmm. And he wrote this this poem or this play about cottagers versus Indians or something like that, right? Because the cottagers of Curve Lake hate the rice. They hate the way it looks. It blocks their view. They don't, yeah. And so, you know, there was this battle um, over, you know, the aesthetic of rice going in, growing in the lake. The aesthetic of rice. Oh. Because in the dominant culture, cottages yeah. and private property yeah. are more important than traditional foodways. Yes. Like, like, and it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But there, there's been this conflict in multiple locations in Ontario that I'm aware of, of, of like legal and like physical and, you know, big cultural conflicts between Indigenous communities and cottager communities because the cottagers are upset that these traditional foodways are impacting their enjoyment of their second homes or whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, right? Yeah. Our first world problems have just become <laughs> oh. so, no wonder he's has to make a, he's a comedian. Comedian poet. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Like, a playwright. Sorry. Yeah. I, I, he's probably a poet too, but he's more a playwright. Yeah. But, the, but so how do we, how do we challenge? I mean, in doing the work that each of us around the table, or I just didn't say us, each of you around the table are, are, are doing obviously more effectively than I could ever do. How do we continue to challenge? What does this look like? We know what people are struggling with right now. I had somebody text me the other day and say, when did milk turn milk? Sorry, but milk get to $5 and 69 cents. Like, you know, when, when did this happen? And if we know people are struggling, how do we, in our small way, start to disrupt and create 
that food sovereignty, as complex as that is, how do we get that to be something that is standard as opposed to something that is rare? Yeah, I would make one comment on on the price of food because everybody's concerned about price of food right now, right? And inflation. And I think that it's important to note two things. One is that food security is not an issue of food. It's not an issue of food availability. It's an issue of income. So people are not earning sufficient incomes in order to be able to afford to purchase healthy food. Second is that food prices currently, even though they've been increasing massively, are still not paying fair, like producers of food, generally speaking, are not receiving fair prices. So almost all of that profit is, again, going into the pockets of transnational corporations and not to the people who are actually growing the food. So that goes for the international food system and everything that we're importing from all over the place, but also for Canadian farmers, like average net farm income in Canada is $0. Like the average farm in Canada earns $0 a year net. Right. So and that's because we are in a major crisis of farm debt and there's a demographic crisis and a whole bunch of stuff we could spend hours talking about. But the fundamental point is that like the the that whole system of distribution is broken. Mm -hmm. And when we have systems where people can access food directly from food producers, that allows for more fair prices on the consumer's end and on the producer's end. But when we have these middlemen who are controlling basically every every stage of the value chain. So from the farm to the processing to the grocery stores and all of the vertical integration that happens in that in that food system, they are able to extract almost all of the value and they are able to hold customers essentially hostage because they can set prices collectively. Like we see, you know, Loblaws fixing the price of bread for God's sake. Like it's it's obvious and it's it's out there, but it's something that people don't talk about a lot. Um, so we see, you know, in, in this in this sense of food sovereignty, we see the solution as being to recreate more direct relationships between eaters and food producers, various types of food producers, whether it's people who are collecting wild rice or, you know, a local organic vegetable farmer or whatever. Um, but recreating those transparent and direct and fair distribution chains um, rooted in in like local economies. Not to say that we can't have avocados and coffee anymore, like I still want those things. And there's ways to to have more fair trade practices as well. But diversifying and increasing the amount of food produced in our local regions is, is a crucial, crucial piece of this puzzle. Mm-hmm. Another piece I might pick up on, you talked about sort of not talking about things and also about understanding. Um, having relationships between sort of different people. I I do think there's still a good swath of our population, including sometimes myself, where you just don't have an understanding of someone else's experience, you know, so telling the stories, getting to know each other on a, on a really personal level, hearing the story of, of wild rice it helps you to understand, okay, so if I had a cottage and, and I was in that situation, you know, what's my side of that versus what are, you know, other people's sides. And Um, you know, some of the work that I do in qualitative research or or community-based research is kind of about even just capturing the the everyday experiences in a way that's really respectful and and done in a way that uh, can tell the story so that you know, there's there's the ability to communicate, uh, there's ability to to build compassion, to build empathy, to build relationships Mm -hmm. so that things can be improved together, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Is that I do still think that there's 
some trepidation. People don't necessarily want to do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing. And then they're, they're because of that sort of keeping themselves to themselves, you know, and, uh, uh, they're, so we, we can all work on, on sort of crossing boundaries as For best sure. as possible, you know, in, in respectful ways. Yeah. This is the the third time today that we're, that I'm saying stories are sticky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if we're, if we're not willing, I mean, that was such a powerful story of, of, of what happens with wild rice and that, that component of it. But if we're not saying those stories, if we're not building those connections that allow for some of that fear to drop that allow for some of that okay oh how do I understand this how do I create that then you're absolutely right we're going to be talking about this 20 years if you guys want to come back in 20 years and have the same conversation (laughs) I prefer not actually (laughs) I prefer not I prefer not to but yeah, go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. I was, you know, um, you know, we started talking about, about the pandemic and I felt like I feel like the that time of lockdown and the pandemic was this opportunity to like <sighs> rethink what we really value as a society. Um, I hoped. Did we? Did we? Though? I, well, I I, 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 I still want to be hopeful. Um, the pandemic was still go, still going on. I've referred to COVID as like um, a trickster, super, super sneaky, like uh, sneaks in without us knowing and then infects everyone. And then as soon as we think we got a handle on it, changes shape. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll keep changing shape until I believe we've learned the lesson. So a trickster story is about, it's usually, it's a, it could be a little bit funny and humorous, but there's always a lesson. Right. And we haven't yet learned the lesson mm. um, from this trickster that's COVID. Um, but it is related to some of the lessons that we could learn were are about um, food systems. So wasn't it incredible that that boat getting stuck in the Su- Suez Canal had all these ripple effects across the globe? Yeah. Like that is a fragile system then yes. if one boat can get stuck and we're all like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Um I and forgot so, about that. I know. Well, I, you know what? I didn't because I was just in a play and one of my lines was, hey, did you hear about that boat getting stuck in the Suez Canal? <laughs> so I, I think about it all the time. Um, but what's interesting about, about my play that I was in, it was set in Ottawa and it was about how our local neighborhood came together and it was a lot about food. So, you know, someone would order like, three limes and the grocery store pickup, they would end up with 30, you know, mm. and then it was this, this sharing as a this buy nothing project movement. And, you know, they'd be like, I have a hundred limes who would like them. And then people are like, I'll take them. I'll take them. So it was like this buy nothing movement of like a community coming together under such incredible strain. Mm-hmm. And can we learn something from that? Yeah. Um, related to our food system? I hope so. Everybody's in this big rush to go back to normal. normal. Yeah. I don't want to go back to normal. I want to go back to something better than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think going back to Colleen's point, Sarah, if we if we take the time to really express, understand, challenge those stories, we we did go back to just forgetting that did we want what we had before did we is there is better and it turned into a tagline it's better 
build back better, better as possible or whatever they were saying. But there is the capacity to do that if we decide that that is what we want to do. And so we just have a few minutes left because we have had such a fantastic conversation. I want to just throw it out to each of you to give some final thoughts around um, this conversation. Where do we go next? What are the conversations? What are we not saying even in this podcast that we should be talking about? Who should we be talking to? Why should we be talking to them? Let's disrupt the harbor a little bit. Yeah, so... I want to bring this back to the question of land mm -hmm. because that's the that's the fundamental thing that underlies our entire food system and our relationship with food is our relationship with the land right. and how people can or cannot have access to land. Right. Um, you know, Sarah spoke about about traditional foodways and and relationship with the land in that context, but also just from uh, like a, a production of commercial food, like who can access land and become a farmer, for example, and, and be allowed to feed their communities. And right now we are in a situation in which the, the price of land has become completely inaccessible to most people. We've seen a massive, massive consolidation in the agricultural industry over the past 60 years. So the number of farmers, the number of people living on the land and producing food has declined by like 70% since 1990. Um, the number of young people entering the industry is like none, <laughs> basically. And the, the real reason is the, the cost of land is like it's impossible. It's literally impossible now to pay for land by growing food. It's not possible. So how is a young person supposed to you know, if a young person wants to grow food for their community in a commercial capacity, like it's not a viable business. You have to have some other source of income or you need to have some other way of paying for that land. The other piece is that, you know, we've had this massive urbanization of our of the Canadian population over the past 50 years. More and more people living in cities and dependent on just food being imported into the cities. So, I mean, you know, where is that food coming from and who are the people that are on the land? Do they own the land? Do they own their, their means of production? Or is it essentially modern day forms of slave labor that are supplying the food system? And then the, for those people who are living in the city, what is their relationship to the land? If they have no relationship to land at all, how are they even supposed to think about these things like where food comes from and, and how the land is treated in our food system if they don't have uh, any way of engaging with the land themselves? So one of the big things that we're working on at Loving Spoonful is access to land in the urban environment. Um, so, so we facilitate the Community Gardens Network, for example, and we have this urban community training farm now. But we're trying to work with the city to identify ways of how, how can we at least increase access for everybody to publicly owned land. Like if somebody wants to produce their own food, access to land for that purpose should be considered a fundamental right. Mm -hmm. But obviously it's not currently in our, in our current like <laughs> cultural and legal uh, context. But that's something that we're working towards is how do we how do we figure out a way that everybody can have relationship with the land and can can have access to land for food production if that's what they want to do. Can you tell me or tell our listeners where you're located? what your setup is because we didn't do that at the beginning I yeah want, sure. i want to make sure that even if i'm not allowed we give you a shameless plug here <laughs> yeah so loving spoonful i mean we have our offices at kingston community health centers up on on weller avenue in in rideau heights um but we operate 
throughout the city. So we do a bunch of different programs. We have community kitchens programs and our, our school gardens programs. Um, the Community Gardens Network, there's 35 community gardens throughout Kingston. And wow. just recently this year, we launched our urban community farm that has a job skills training program. So we're, tra we're actually trying to train new and young farmers um, to get into the industry. Um, and so a lot of that is around like skills development, but that's the big piece. And that's why I constantly bring it back to the question of land is because I'm like, what, what am I training people for? Yeah. Like the skills, the skills and the knowledge are one piece, but if they don't have somewhere to take those skills and knowledge and actually apply them on the land, then the whole thing is pointless. So that's the big kind of political question that we're trying to do more advocacy on now is like figuring out that land access question. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I'm going to turn it over to Sarah, your last words and what you want to disrupt here in the harbor. Oh, well, I think, um, you know, when, when we look at a complex problem like food security and food sovereignty, um, it needs like multiple complementary, um, you know, interventions to address it. But when you really think about it and you do like a root cause analysis, what, what is the problem that we're facing? And, and I, I do think we're, we're often being fooled as consumers to what um, our healthy choices are. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think like if you've ever tried to do like a, um, a non-processed food diet for a while, like 30 days, it's really hard. It's really hard to access food that's local and not processed. It's not, I mean, it's a, it's a culture shift for an individual and a family right, to do that. Right. And so I think we just need like to flip it on its head and as a society demand a different system. So I guess some people call that a revolution um, where you need to just totally change um, the way the way we live to make buying local, um, healthy, non-processed foods the easiest choice. Mm. Um, right now, it's not the easiest choice. No, no. So whatever we can do to do that. And I think it starts with increasing society's awareness that we're, we're actually being fooled by a system, a commercialized system. Mm -hmm. And that that during the, the sort of peak of the pandemic was a, was a real, you know, buy local, shop local, do oh, local. Yeah. And then we just reverted back. Yeah, as soon this. as that boat got unstuck and things kept flowing. <laughs> as soon as the boat got it, those pictures were horrible. But as soon as, the, no, but yeah. to be honest, we just reverted back. And where did that, where did that energy, where did that activism disappear to? And how do we regain that momentum mm. again? It, and even in our small ways, how do we start to regain that momentum? I'm just thinking about going home to Whitby and where would I get if I didn't have a car oh, and yeah. I didn't have, you know, all of the extra amenities that I do, where would I get fresh, non-processed food that would be a hour and a half bus ride to Macmillan Farms which is just down the road to be honest great point mm -hmm. Colleen well I think it's interesting that our whole conversation about these topics did not mention food banks at all mm. <laughs> uh, and so that's telling um Food deserts is another, so in cities, you know, there's sort of a segregation of different populations and the businesses, and sometimes they don't make sense. So what you're talking about there might be related to that. Yeah. 
this idea of food banks is, I find it's kind of a, a, a it's emblem emblematic of of the conflict we have between needing to make the structural structural changes, but at the same time knowing that there are populations that are literally needing food, needing nutritious food, and needing food of their own choices. And uh, so how do we have those two things? And, and sometimes uh, the resources, emphasis, and year after year, all of our donations go to the latter, the food bank kind of uh, method. And the structural changes don't get made. And it's not an either or, it has to be both. Mm-hmm. Um, and globally, we see this. I mean, it is not... It is not okay that there are people literally starving to death uh, in the world. And, you know, the the sadness of that is real. So we do need to donate. We need to come together. We need to to help people in droughts and, and famines, et cetera, and, and in communities where literally they are going hungry. Parents are giving up their food for their own children, et cetera. But that cannot be done at the expense of the structural changes, because if it is, it's just an unending cycle that we're in. So somehow figuring out a way to do both for all of us, for our governments, for all of our organizations, that's the challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, if Elaine Power was here, who's a, a faculty member at Queen, she would talk about basic income in a Canadian context, making sure that people have enough money mm-hmm. to live a dignified life of their choice. Yeah. Here, here. Mm-hmm. Yeah very complex but if if we actually stop talking about these solutions and as someone who was formerly in government mm-hmm. and enacted some of these solutions i think the conversation could go to more other problems and we could move along um but i do want to thank each of you for being with us in the harbor today disrupting rocking boats, um, ensuring that, God, we're back to the Suez Canal again. (laughs) Uh, 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 But having conversations that that really challenge. And so I thank you, Sarah, for being here. Thank you, Colleen. And thank you, Ayla, for being here today. Thank you to our listeners for listening in to the harbor. Again, a safe place to disrupt and to talk about uh, the journey that what is necessary on the journey to get to justice and reconciliation. Thank you for listening. Thank you much.